0: Welcome to another episode of Three Course Politics Podcast. I'm Josh. And I'm Hills. And we welcome you to episode 25, Hills. Episode 25, the big two five.
1: We've been doing this uh, 25 times and we are so grateful.
0: 25 times and all the improvements that have been made throughout the course of the podcast. Uh, We appreciate you guys listening and episode 25 is a big one. For your appetizer, we're going to talk about Obamagate. It's the biggest scandal you have not heard of. (laughs) the entree we're gonna you're gonna hear hills's interview with dr rachel biddecofer and we are very grateful to have her on the podcast and have her answer some questions hills do you want to talk about the uh, interview with her yeah
1: it was a really really comprehensive interview uh, she talked to what democrats need to do in 2020 to win and also beyond 2020 how to how to really use turnout and and get your voters out there In order to win, and it doesn't sound so hard, but Republicans have figured out how to do this in the Trump age. So you're going to want to take a listen.
0: Yeah, make sure you guys take a listen to that to that interview. It is uh, really really good, and um, we appreciate her taking the time to uh, talk with you. Make sure you stick around for that. A side dish for our life under lockdown is if you could watch a documentary about any person or team, who would it be and why? I'm sure people have heard of the Last Dance, currently on ESPN, and so we thought. What's a uh, team or a person that you can watch a documentary about? So that's our life under lockdown. And for dessert, we are going to talk about the HEROES Act that House Dems just passed this past Friday. But first, have you subscribed? Please do so now. It'll help get you the episodes quicker. All you have to do is go to your podcast, wherever you are listening, and click the subscribe button. If you want to go one step further and rate us uh, and be honest, it will help us spread the word and help us grow our podcast. So subscribe and please rate us.
1: You can rate us a one, but we don't really prefer you do that. But if you need to do that, you can. But we would like
0: a five. So if you could do that, that would be you great. Can, you can give us a one. We're just not going to show that. We'll just, you know, <laughs> delete that uh, rate. So, no, just kidding. But please uh, please do subscribe. Please do rate us. You've got nothing to do. You're all at home just looking for things to do. And, you know, why not rate the podcast? Yeah, you're, you're at home listening to this. So you could just rate it super quick. You can do it right now. Oh, big show hills, lots to cover, and we're going to get right into it with your pre-dinner shot that is coming up next.
1: So this has been going around the news, but how many inspector generals, inspector generals are uh, servants of the federal government in order to root out corruption, crime, and waste in the federal government? They make sure everyone's doing their jobs. How many of these folks did Trump fire in the last five months? (laughs) It just sounds so weird as if, like, you would never ask a question like that. But he did. He fired fired uh, quite a number of them. So how many inspector generals did Trump fire in the last five months?
0: Hills, I'm going to take a guess that the answer is not zero
1: it i will tell you now the answer is not zero this is not a trick question it's higher than that
0: okay well unfortunately what a lovely relevant pre-dinner shot question we have
1: right um and when it segues great into your appetizer which is about a scandal you've never heard of and isn't a scandal so (laughs) that is coming up
0: next So your appetizer today, we are going to talk about Obamagate. What is it, and how are Republicans and Democrats handling it? Hills, is Obamagate when Obama wore a tan suit?
1: No, that is not it, Josh, unfortunately. I wish it was. Hills,
0: is Obamagate when Obama uh, saluted to the Marines with a coffee in his hand? Mm, that's gate, not Obamagate. Coffeegate. <laughs> okay. I bring those up because... This uh, Obamagate, this scandal, is perhaps uh, even stupider than both of when Obama wore a tan suit and when he saluted the Marines with a coffee in his hand. It is perhaps the stupidest thing that is not a scandal that uh, Trump has really just made up. So let's get into it. This was probably about two weeks ago, last week, I think it was actually just a week ago. Um, Trump decided it'd be a great idea to, on Mother's Day, just start spouting out about Obamagate, Obamagate, Obamagate. And no one knew what it was. (laughs) Trump just starts with a scandal and then just lets people fill in the details. The premise of Obamagate is that, uh, on his way out of the White House, Obama and Joe Biden and James Comey, because you always have to bring James Comey back into it, um, The three of them conspired to plant this phony theory that Trump was colluding with Russia in order to win the 2016 election. So they planted it, right? And then when Trump came into office, a number of people in his circle became framed. The Most prominent one is Michael Flynn, who in December 2017 had pled guilty to lying to the FBI uh, during Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference. So this Obamagate theory is Trump is saying that Obama and Biden and Comey have planted this phony theory, this fake theory, that Trump conspired with Russia in 2016. And then they are uh, Obama is taking down people in Trump's inner circle. He is the reason why why Michael Flynn was uh, forced to leave, was under investigation, despite the fact that Trump was the one who fired Michael Flynn, not Obama hills does how crazy is this theory he literally oh my god this theory <laughs> is is
1: not just like the normal level of crazy this is like batshit shit crazy i i cannot tell you how crazy this is that they're doing bad things these people are doing bad things and they're making up complete crap to make it sound legitimate i just he trump fired the guy he fired
0: the guy like <laughs> Trump fired Flynn because he didn't like that Flynn had lied to, Vi- to Vice President Mike Pence. That's why he fired him. That's, that's, that's the reason. <laughs> and now Trump is trying to walk it back and say, well, actually, it's Obama's fault that Michael Flynn <laughs> got you know unmasked or that Michael Flynn got caught up in all of this. This is a- Obama's fault. The reason he's doing it is probably threefold. One, he wants to distract from COVID. Because Trump thinks that we've won COVID, that vaccine or no vaccine, the U.S. is back. So he needs something else. He needs something to distract people from coronavirus. Number two is he wants to rile up the Trumpers. He wants to rile up his supporters. If you remember Hills in 2018, it was this huge caravan that was coming to kill all of us, uh, which never happened. Trump was coming and it just petered (laughs) out. Uh, Trump needs something to get his base out. And so he needs to concoct these fake stories to rile up his base. And then thirdly, he he can't help the fact that Obama is more popular than him, that Obama is a better president than him. He can't deal with that. So he has to find a way to attack Obama's approval. And by attacking Obama's approval rating, he's going to attack Obama as well. Uh, I think those are the three things that Trump used for creating Obamagate
1: yeah i completely agree uh, agree with everything you said and we were you know we're approaching a hundred thousand americans who have lost their lives to coronavirus and just we were talking about that two months ago and be like that would be unfathomable to to lose that many americans in like three months and here we are right and no one is batting an eye and he's creating he's going after a former president which you know usually isn't done there's usually uh like a respect that even if you hate the guy, you just kind of lay low. Like it's the office that you're respecting. Meanwhile, he just he goes off. He's trying to distract everyone and go after Biden to bring down Obama to bring down Biden.
0: And it's just it's really, really gross. It's just depressing as well. And, you know, Obama gave this great speech um, last night. That would have been uh, Saturday, May 16th, about graduation. And it was a wonderful speech talking to the graduates. Trump this morning uh, the reporters asked him about Obama's speech, and Trump said, uh, all I can say is he was a grossly incompetent president. So anytime that Trump can try to bring down Obama, he's going to do that. There's actually a clip in the hills, maybe you can put it in the show notes. There was a reporter who asked him what the actual crime was that Obama committed. And Trump just responded with, it's the worst crime ever committed. It's totally unfair. It should never happen again. And that was it. And the reporter's like, but what's the actual crime? And Trump said, you know what the crime is. (laughs) This is what Trump does. (laughs) We don't actually know what the crime is. Can you please tell us? Can you please tell us? Um, So Hills, how do you think Republicans are handling it? Um, How how are they handling Trump's craziness?
1: I feel like they're doing exactly what we thought they were going to do, which is nothing. They all know this is they all know this is BS. I'm sure there are some that actually really believe this, like they they truly believe that this is something that's happening. But they, most of them know this is just this is just crap. This is just politics. And they're not going to stand up to Trump. They're going to use this to drive out their base. They're going to use this for turnout. They're going to use this to really go after democrats whichever way they can this is this is just another weapon that they're going to use if you think the republicans are going to be responsible about this you haven't seen the last 10 years of
0: their party we can't count on republicans to hold this president accountable it'd be wonderful if we lived in a world where trump says something like like this and you had majority of republicans saying that's not true blah blah blah. they're just gonna uh, continue to um support him as long as he is the president so and Hills, how do you think Dems should handle this? <laughs> oh man,
1: you know I really like. Part of me <laughs> feels that like part of me feels that they should really push back on this. But then you're already like you're you're taking the bait, right? You're taking the bait. Mm-hmm. So I really think they should re- they should keep on message, keep on message about a what they're going to do for you as as a country when they get in power B about the stuff that trump is lying about like why would you believe something that a liar tells you right they can expose all the time he's lied about before and say don't you think he's trying to pull uh, another one over on you again like just expose his credibility here because he does he knows that he's not going to get called out for it so i think you really have to call him out with a, a really disciplined systemic messaging which i'm not sure they could do but i really hope they would do
0: yeah um I, I think you're right. I think it, it could be something as simple as, um, you know, that with, with almost 100,000 Americans dead from the coronavirus, this president would rather create fake scandals. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what Democrats are fighting for. And then go back on message. I don't think you need to give this stupid Obamagate any light of day pushback on it initially to say, say obviously, it's not true. Here, the president is trying to create a diversion. And here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to make your life better. Just stay on method. I think you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the guy is talking about Obamagate or talking about something that he just made up and him and his allies made up while 100,000 Americans died. That's not a president. That's a child. We're doing it right now, yeah. Josh.
0: <laughs> we <We're> in charge. We're <laughs> doing As we've said multiple times, Hills, how are we not running the DNC?
1: It's because you already know what the crime is.
0: You know it you know
1: what the crime is
0: <laughs> that's true that's i don't true. need to say Let's it you already we all know what the crime is
1: yeah <laughs> Jeez. Ugh. no but i think you're i think you're right i mean um like this is if he's going to bring up this crap is he going to bring up this this absolute just just it's fantasy because this is what people want to believe then you know what we should we should be ready to respond with an assault on his character and honestly, now is the best time to assault the character of a guy who lets 100,000 people die on his watch because of lack of preparedness. Like, yeah. we can combine all the things mm-hmm. the Democrats can combine, all the things they want um, to tell about Trump into this. But then I feel like there's just no one in charge right now being like, hey, this is what we should do. Everyone's kind of like, oh,
0: what do we do? Yeah. Well, I think they're looking to Joe Biden and he's trapped it's in his basement.
1: Well, he can, he can be giving a little bit more direction, even trapped in his basement.
0: That's true. One thing that I think, last thing about the appetizer, I think could be interesting is um, we've talked on the podcast about how um, Obama is very involved in this uh, election. I think Obama feels bad about the mistakes he made of not trying hard enough in his words, not anyone else's words, his own words about um, trying to go and campaign for Hillary, because he was the sitting president at the time. So there's some you know a stigma around that. But I think Obama is really set on trying to make sure that Biden gets into the White House and it could be interesting if Trump spends all of his time attacking Obama and not attacking Biden which you know could be good for uh for for Biden. Just a theory I just thought about. No,
1: I think I think that's right. I think you're exactly right. I found the uh the clip of Trump. We'll put it in the show notes as well, but we will leave you with this beautiful, beautiful phrase, answer by 45. Listen here.
0: Mr. President, in one of your Mother's Day tweets, you appear to accuse President Obama of the biggest political crime in American history, by far, those were your words. What crime exactly are you accusing President Obama of committing, and do you believe the Justice Department should prosecute him? Uh, Obamagate, it's been going on for a long time. It's been going on from before I even got elected And it's a disgrace that it happened. And if you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now, all of this information that's being released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Uh, Some terrible things happened, and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the next over the coming weeks, but I, and I wish you'd write honestly about it, but unfortunately, you choose not to do so. Yeah, John, please. Crime. What is the crime exactly that uh, you're accusing him of? You know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspapers, except yours. You already know what the crime is, Josh. Well, I can't think of a better way to end our uh, Obamagate segment than with those uh, wise words. You already know what the crime is. So that is your, your appetizer, and the interview that Bill's had is coming up next.
1: Today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Rachel Bidikofar. Doctor, do I have permission to use this recording and your voice on the podcast? You do. Okay, perfect. She is a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, a policy think tank. Her research has been featured in many media outlets, such as the New York Times, The Washington Post, USA Today, NPR, and she's a contracted commentator on CBC Radio. Her book, The Unprecedented 2016 Presidential Election, is available via Amazon. Her innovative election forecasting model predicted the 2018 midterms five months before Election Day. Five months far ahead of other forecasting methods. Her forecasting work argues that American elections have become increasingly nationalized and highly predictable, with partisanship serving as an identity-based, dominant vote determinant for all but a small portion of Americans. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights on 2020.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: (laughs) Well, very wonderful. Um, Our first question for you today is, How should Democrats be using the coronavirus pandemic in the 2020 elections? Are they doing enough, too little? What would you be doing differently?
2: Well, we're not in campaign season right now, right? So, you know, I mean, to some some degree, they're not doing enough, right? Um, But, you know, we're not really in active campaign mode. Um, And yes, the answer to that is yes. I mean, the um, mismanagement of the pandemic both in terms of the delayed response, which caused our death total. Uh, I think one study put it as at least a 40% increase in the total number of deaths that the country will suffer due to the Trump um, administration, Trump's refusal basically to embrace the um, inevitability of the pandemic and to take steps early on to avoid it. Um, uh, He was uh, really trying to protect the market. And due to the way that the pandemic has been managed after the outbreak um, is really just very fertile ground for Democrats come fall. Uh, and it certainly is something that they should exploit. Absolutely, if the shoe was on the other foot and the, uh, even in a situation, let's say, where Obama was still president and the pandemic had been well managed, Republicans would frame uh, the management as poor and they would just eviscerate uh, the Democrats for the way that it was managed. So, um, you know, it's an unfortunate aspect of politics, but in a case where the mismanagement allegation has a lot of, um, um, you know, um, uh, basis for for fact, I mean, I would certainly expect them to go after it pretty strongly. And then, you know, when you add into that the economic valleys, what I'm expecting is you know, we've already had more austerity in the response than what we would have seen under a, um, you know, fully Democratic-controlled government. And I think that we're going to see the byproduct of that austerity start to roll in in the fall. So if I was uh, the Democratic campaigns, I would be really hammering also, you know, the um, austerity and how that's impacted economic recovery.
1: I think you make you make a really really good point there, and I know on Twitter we have seen that you've you mentioned that there are some moderate to conservative Democrats who recently didn't support the most recent House bill, the Heroes Act, I believe it's it's called, um, and they took a vote against that. Mean they're, that they're trying to placate voters who won't be voting for them anyway. Do you think that the Heroes Act is a first step towards that messaging? Or, you know, do you think these moderate and conservative Democrats, you know, while knowing that this bill may or may not pass, should they have, they should have voted along with it in your...
2: Yes, yes. So like in the world of the GOP, you would never have seen a small contingent of Republicans vote against this bill. The reason is, is that the Republican Party writ large understands the value of optics, right? So you really want to have the whole party unified, voting all as one. And then um, why those Democrats, predominantly were talking about moderates, not progressives voting against it. it was one symbolic progressive voting against it. Uh, dissension was coming from moderates, coming you know, for a variety of reasons, mostly vague allegations of too much spending on things that weren't directly related to pandemic, uh, the student loan relief package uh, predominantly, but also because they were concerned about getting a Accused of giving money to uh, illegal immigrants. Okay, later on in the in the campaign, um, which is ju- you know it just tells me that Democrats have not yet made the transition yet to understand how to play offensive politics. Because here we're going to be in a in a in a cycle where if you are not winning the messaging war amongst those few swing voters that are out there, when the president has led the country through a pandemic that has killed, you know, probably by that point, 125, maybe 150,000 Americans, um, and you're worried about these little tiny minutiae in a policy like the HEROES Act, and you're willing to vote against a bill called the HEROES Act, you right. really not doing this right, right? And the advisors that are advising these candidates, that's really, that's where the problem lies. It's not the candidates, it's the advisors that are advising them that have um, not, they're not playing the game well. And, um you know, you know here's the here's the uh, irony every one of those people will be accused of, of giving money to illegal aliens okay that um anyway it doesn't matter if they vote for this bill or some particular bill or not and they'll so there will be almost no value added from this vote and the um you know cost is that there'll be some element of, of lack of enthusiasm in that volunteer base in the money, they might, um, you know, uh, primary season's coming to a close already uh, in this cycle, but it's going to compound problems for the next cycle. There's no value added at all, right? So, you know, it, uh, not, and that's why I think you saw, I mean, there's only 16 of them, not 40, right? <laughs> so, so, right, so right. Seeing you I mean, I will say for, for as much frustration as there was in that, you know, the fact that it wasn't 40 also tells you that they're learning. Like there are candidates that are starting to understand the end of the day, if I want to win an election, I cannot let the electorate be more Republican than Democrat, like was the case in that California special um, election. And that is exactly what will happen if turnout wanes and goes back to the pre-Trump era participation that we saw um, under the Obama administration time period.
1: It's almost like we're back in 2014 with the you know, the Senate races where the Democrats ran as far away from...
2: And it helped them zero, And it
1: helped them zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So like if I had been running those races, here's how I would have approached the candidates. You are all going to lose, right? Because we're in a realignment. We're talking about Arkansas. We're talking about um, Louisiana, right? States that are realigning to the right. These are very tough races uh, to win. And so, uh, but you don't win them by telling voters, hey, I'm, um, I am embarrassed to be a member of the party that I'm a member of, okay, uh, because that is, that you've already lost. I mean, what, why what even wage, at that point, why even go, go on, right? there's something inherently flawed with the political party I'm affiliated with and the ideology it represents, like, you've already lost the argument, right? There's no, there is no offense in that, right? And then, um, you know, at the end of the day, if turnout's going to be 38% of the electorate, what matters again is, is it what percent of that is Democrats and independent leaners that are left leaning? Uh, but nobody in the Democratic consultant world is getting people to look at it formularic, you know, in that formula. Uh, and they really need to be making that transition if they don't want to lose control. I mean, I think 2020 uh, is a great cycle for Democrats still. Uh, but 2022 will come quickly and Democrats are going to be looking like that. California 25 literally looks just like that 2014 cycle, which is why I keep uh, juxtaposing the um, the return uh, by party, which we're fortunate to be able to see because it allows us to see that the story isn't about independence, not about um, California 25th you know, swing voters moving decisively against Democrats in an atmosphere toxic for Democrats. It, because California is a rare state with party registration, we can see. Oh no, actually, uh, Republicans really, really outperformed Democrats in turnout. And like in my voter file analysis that I did, where I show 2018 versus 2014, you can see how much that 25th special election looked like 2014. The overall turnout was the same—38, 35, 38 percent—and that 13 point percent participation gap amongst. Republicans advantage that party and what do you get wow go figure you get a Republican victory so like it's very frustrating to me how clear the data is that it's not so it doesn't seem to be clicking and, and you know yet it clicks very clearly on the GOP side, they understand that they've been running their campaigns that way for a long time.
1: Yeah, you think that data would be much clearer? if It's pointing everyone in the, you know, showing everyone in the face. And I think this brings uh, me to really piggybacks well to the next question. You, in your research and in a profile done by Politico, we're going to link that in the show notes too. It was a really, really good piece. I think everyone should read it. It was amazing. You note how true, true independents—really people who just are saying, "I'm an independent"—are really just five to twelve percent of voters. Yeah. Something, something really small I like love that. that. Well, while the rest of the country are really just leaners, they lean a certain way if you really get down to it. Right. With this information and with that data, how can Democrats reorient their messaging to win if really there are more leaners than independents?
2: Yes. And the most important thing happening with independents is their turnout uh, swing, right? (laughs) If leaning independents that lean left turn out like they did in 2018, Joe Biden will be the president. And Democrats could very well control the Senate. If they don't, then um, you know the story will end up differently. So, like you know, the, the swing among independents that concerns me the most is the turnout swing, not the vote preference swing, which is highly, and I argue that that chunk that we're talking about, the five to twelve, and it's variable. Some states have a, a big culture of independent voter, uh, especially in the political North, uh, in the Northeast, um, and other states are less you know inclined towards that. So it really is variable. And then some of those pure independents are my mother in law, extremely um, engaged. Uh, You know, really, she's a real liner. She had voted, uh, military, you know, voters had voted all of their lives with the GOP. The GOP transitioned from the party that they were to the party they are now, leaving her behind. And now she considers herself a pure independent and and she's, um, you know, really, really well read. Most independents, though, in that pure category are actually not like that. They um, don't really follow the news well. They aren't super engaged in current events. They aren't super interested in it. They do have a sense of civic duty, though. Uh, maybe they were socialized into that via their parents. Maybe they picked up the importance of voting in college or whatever. They feel like they should vote, but they don't, aren't into it. So they don't know a lot about it, and they and therefore I argue under my research they're super subjected to climate um, type things. So uh, I call them change voters, and I argue that generally speaking, you know the the, the way that you know 55-45-60-40 breakdown for those pure independents is going to pan out is dependent on uh, which party is out of power.
1: Right, right this this myth of like the independents that are out there and they're controlling everything, and I feel like Democrats almost tailor their strategy to try and get those people rather than turn out worse right, like, right. Yeah,
2: like actually worse than that. The, the Democrats tailor their strategy to try to get Republicans to vote for <laughs> them. and then they don't even do that really well, I would argue. Yeah. but let's just say let's just take it face value that they do do that. and here's like here's the fallacy of that. Like I think a great way to illustrate it is like in most places that are competitive, not one of these one-sided states, but in competitive places, the way the party distribution of the electorate is is that the biggest group, the plurality group, is probably Democrats, maybe independents. So sometimes Democrats are the biggest group, sometimes independents are the biggest group, but always Republicans are the smallest group in the population. But because they are more um, likely to show up to vote. And um, you know, for a long time, the assumption has been that's because they're genetically predisposed to be better voters. I argue, no, it's because the GOP is better at getting them to vote <laughs> than the Democrats. And this is a fixable problem, right? Um, they, um, Even though there's less of them, their higher turnout ratios help them offset that population disadvantage, right? But here's the interesting thing. In Republican politics world do you does it look like the GOP thinks they need to get Democrats to vote for them to win elections? No. Not at and all. There's nothing about their strategy that gives you that impression. The media doesn't talk about it like that. You know, there's no punditry talking about it like that. And yet they're the lowest populated group. So if anybody needed opposition party voters to vote for them it'd be them logically, right? yet Democrats, the conversation is often about getting opposition party voters to vote for them. Certainly Nancy Pelosi even believes it. You know, she said Republican suburban women voted for us over healthcare and da 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 da, right? Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't happen. It didn't happen. We just We just showed that empirically in California, like those Republicans showed up, they voted for Trump, just like Hard carrying Republicans did in 2018, and now you can see it more clearly in the data because Democrats didn't show up the cloud to make like the signal unclear, right? Um, so I don't know why Democrats are so convinced that they need Republicans to win because they don't. Um, in terms of independence, yeah, I mean, independence, you want to win over pure independence, but a lot of that is going to be atmospheric. That said, the way to not do it is to go out there and tell them that you're embarrassed to be you.
1: Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know a lot, um, but I do know that if I was one of those voters and I had one candidate it was really confident and proud to be them, and the other one's like, yeah, I'm not one of those other people like me. I'm different. I'm actually more like that guy. I'm a fiscal conservative, even though fiscal conservatism has completely raped the American middle class and destroyed like, basically like living and working in America other than being an elite. Like, you know, why would you even want to run on the record of fiscal conservatism? It's a shitty record. Yet, you know, that's how Democrats run moderate politics. So, you know, my argument isn't, hey, everyone should run as a Bernie Sanders Democrat. That's not what my research argues, right? My research argues, though, that when you're doing a a moderate message, it should probably come from a position of strength. And somebody needs to make an affirmative case for economic liberalism, because if you're not doing that, you're shitting on your own brand, and it's going to be pretty hard, um, you know, to deal with the systemic brand image issues, especially when you know you've got a media environment that heavily favors right wing media, and one side is is blanketing the airwaves constantly with, with criticism about Democrats and liberalism, and then the only other message coming in these competitive races are um, yeah, I'm not one of those people. I'm actually one of these other people more, right? That, that's not. That's just not healthy um, dialogue. It's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible positioning. And that's what Democrats have been doing for 20 or 30 years. Now, it might have made sense at a point of time in the 1980s and 90s when we had this party sorting um, you know, system going on where liberals were sorting into the Democratic Party because there were liberal Republicans back then. And conservatives were sorting into the Democratic Party, and the conversation was more heterogeneous. Uh, um, um, you know, uh, you know, we had you we had a lot of coalition that was um, overlapping. But now we have these really distinct ideological camps. Uh, the demographics are really sorted, and I argue that the Democrats need a top-down messaging overhaul.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, well, I run from. The things that your voters are going to want to hear from, you know, you want to drive out your own voters. And I know that's something in your research. You, it's all about turnout. It's all about yes, turnout. And At get the end voters. of
2: the day, Ohio, yeah. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, any place, anywhere, any cycle. If a Democrat's going to win it, it will be because when ballots get returned and you can't always see it because they don't always have party reg the percent of Republicans will not greatly outnumber the percent of Democrats, right? In 2018, that was true, right? Democrats almost reached parity on ballot return with Republicans and they won elections. In 2014, Republicans returned many more ballots than Democrats and they won. In 2016, Republicans returned more ballots than Democrats and they won. You can't win if you don't, it's, a polarized electorate, it's not the '90s. So Democrats really need to understand how important that coalitional, left leaning independents and Democrats um, turnout is, and and then you got to focus on where is it marginal, right? So like where do where who who needs nudges? And and you know you can curse the wind and say, well, screw those people, man. They can't show up to vote when the world's on fire. I got nothing for them. Well, you know what? That you know. Smug satisfaction, or you know, saying, "Well, you know, the Bernie people were mean to me, or mean to Joe Biden, well, whatever." You know, like you can lick your wounds, or you could, you know, think strategically, which is what I recommend: think strategically and say, "Okay, if younger people, if a couple points of turnout increase, and and this myth that young people are not voting, uh, you know, which I know people had an emotional vested interest in perfect in in um." You know, keeping going. Oh, look, Bernie failed to make a youth revolution. Right. Um, you know, in 2018, in these congressional districts, I analyzed using the voter file data, so not surveys, but everybody that voted uh, um, for 18 to 24 year olds, 24 to 29 year olds. Their turnout and participation rates increased by like a thousand percent. Okay, and that's how those districts helped I mean, the was a major factor in those districts flipping. A thousand percent increase in, in 18 to 29 from 2016 in 2020 guarantees Joe Biden is the president in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in Michigan. And a lot of it is racial overlap because those age those um generations are the most diverse, right? Um, uh, but you don't you want to focus on where vote is you know, vote turnout is variable. And somebody asked me today what percent of the white vote can uh, Biden need to win to win? And I said, well, it's completely contingent on, A, the college-educated versus non-educated breakdown of that white vote because Biden's going to win over college-educated whites. And so, you know, even in a high-turnout environment, 30% of the electorate's going to be missing. And if most of that missing electorate is non-college-educated voters, that's going to benefit Biden. But the other you know, variation is, okay, how much of the electorate's not white, (laughs) right? Because it takes pressure off of how much white vote you need if you have a lot of non-white voters. So anything that you can do to pull up deep uh, turnout of non-white voters in Detroit, in Philadelphia, in Charlotte, in Phoenix, in, you know, Atlanta, all of those places, I mean, that's going to make or break your um, success in the Senate map and in the presidential map.
1: That's a, I mean, that's a fantastic point. You know, you're the vote share of, of, as you said, the vote share of that white electorate that you need decreases when you have other things to take its place. Um, And in your Senate update, you wrote, um, which I will also link, it's a fantastic piece. It's it's very thorough and detailed. You note how negative partisanship, you know, hating the other guy more, you know, hating Trump has fueled turnout in some ways. uh, Yeah, and fear.
2: Yeah, negative Um, partisanship, it it is hate, but also it's fear.
1: Yeah, Um, you know, the hate and fear and changing demographics and the the rise of younger age cohorts have shaped Democrats' prospects nationally, especially in Texas, potentially in Arizona. So I would love if you could expand and tell us more about, you know, how do you think Democrats should use these opportunities in in the 2020 election for a larger playing field moving forward? You know, just not even... About oh, we need to win back North Carolina, but you know there's more potential out there. There's
2: yeah, there. sure there is. And and you know here's the thing, it's about stakes. It's about stakes framing. Democrats like to campaign on policy because they they know that they're winning the policy conversation and public opinion data. So they like to try to remind voters, well, look, you want Medicaid expansion and we have Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, which is fine. I mean, it's it, it. You know, the problem is is like they win elections. And it's like ice cream sales and uh, correlating with spiking polio rates. So they think this thing worked because we won the election when actually there is a spurious relationship between the two of them. Um, what mattered in 2018 was that people were freaked out from negative partisanship, fear, and hate of Donald Trump, dramatically increased turnout, drove it up 14 points, made the electorate younger, more educated and less white. And that'd be for Democrats. And so you want to do that. And here's the thing with Democrats is they like literally decided that they would not, like they told their candidates and their campaigns, don't talk about Trump, because that will isolate these magical Republicans that are going to vote for you. Right. Uh, And me and Michael Steele, who I suspected felt the same, but now I know after having hung out with him on this podcast, uh, and having watched his reaction, the reason I suspected he felt the same was because he, I had watched him on TV, literally, I eye-rolled himself out of a chair when Tom Perez revealed that the strategy would be to not run against Donald Trump in 2018. Um, you know, thats it's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, as Steele said to Perez then, in 2010, I made the entire election a referendum on Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama, and we picked up 63 seats in the house. I mean, you know, so like the referendum effect happened in 2018, but it had to happen naturally. So you asked me, like, what can we do? Well, number one, don't just let the referendum effect happen naturally, tap into it intentionally and massage it. It's got a lot more power in it than Democrats have used thus far. And, you know, the way that you do that is you tie the Senate incumbents to Trump like an Alva trumps right? I mean, Collins, you want to top tossle top Collins out, you know, you can't let her run on this mantle of I'm the most bipartisan senator in the world, right? You got to make her a Trump minion. And, you know, Democrats also get caught up on this idea of what, like, what's true, right? Well, does the GOP run on what's true? No, they don't. They make their own reality. Now, I certainly don't advocate at all that Democrats copy, you know, literally copy the GOP playbook because in my current book, I argue that, uh, you know, the GOP campaign techniques literally drove the GOP base nuts. And, you know, a large reason of where we are with Trump and Trumpism and the erosion of the rule of law is the byproduct of that. Okay. But there is a lot to take away from a Republican electioneering that Democrats could need to use to, to get political power and vote onto it. Because literally, the fate of the republic is now hanging in the balance, and uh, some of that is nationalizing. You know, tying. Nobody cares about state legislative politics. You know, when you're talking to voters, you're not talking to you. You're talking to average Americans. They don't know who their state legislature legislator is. Even if they happen to vote, they don't care. They're never going to care. So the way the GOP deals with that is they tie you know, a vote for generic Mike Smith in the state house as a vote for Trump. Like, oh, we know you don't care for this guy, but if you show up for this guy, you're voting for Trump, you're supporting Trump. Oh, I am? So like, obviously, logically, if you're running in the Texas state house like trying to flip that state house, what you want to do is you want to tell these people who you're now trying to get to to fill a total ballot out because the Texas GOP overturned um, straight ballot ticket. Uh, once it started to turn against them, they made it so you don't get to do a straight um, Democratic ticket. So now all, all the people have to go through the ballot and, and Democrats are um, haunted by ballot drop-off, much worse than Republicans are and their voters don't finish the ballot. So if you wanna solve that problem, how do you do it? You don't do it by trying to appeal to these people about state policy and abortion and Medicaid and all this bullshit. You make them realize like A, Voting for the state representative is a life or death matter, and B that it's a way to send a FU to Trump or to Mitch McConnell, right? right. <laughs> like that, you know, that's how the, Dem- the Republicans, did. it. Everything is about Nancy Pelosi or Obama or something like that, right? So that when I say nationalizing the election, that's what I mean. Yeah, you
1: know, I it's I, I know exactly what we're saying. You know, sometimes the the our competitors have some ideas that work and we don't have to forgive we don't have to be someone different we don't have to be someone different as a party to actually win and use some of the good ideas right Right.
2: and you don't have to take it like all the way right Right. you can still be ethical and also competent
1: right um you know this this brings me to a thought like in in places like kansas and montana where there are opportunities for Democratic Senate gains, you know, in, in twenty twenty and, and beyond, and you know these states are traditionally very really conservative. What should Democrats use to win these seats yeah. um, and broaden their coalition, especially if r- really these independents are actually just leaners at the end of the yeah.
2: day? I mean, one of the reasons why those places are conservative is for, in political science, there is this um, concept called um, the disconnect between symbolic and operational ideology. So voters. Support all these liberal policies, but when you ask them symbolically, they are um, limited government and conservative principles are, is how they align. And, and it's because of, like I said, for 30 years, no one has defended the broader principles of liberalism. So, you know, I argue, you know, in the long term, what you want to do in Kansas and Montana is start to make an argument on those broad principles, because right now no one's doing that. So, like when uh, Bullock runs his race in Montana, He's going to do it on the GOP's framework, not on the Democratic framework. And you know, he at some point the party needs to work on its brand, and that ha- that's not a small investment. Like that's we're talking about, like how BP after the oil spill ran those national ads just about how great BP was. That's what the Democrats need to do. They have a major branding issue all across Middle America. They need to work on the brand of the party and on the brand of liberalism. And the way that you do that is you, you know, um, uh, show America what fiscal conservative and, and liberal limited government mean in practice. And it should be really easy now, because I've been, I've been talking about those principles for a long time, this argument for a few years. Now we have this pandemic. And this pandemic has un, you know, really ripped the mask off of what limited government and starved the state means for people when shit gets real, right? And this is what it means it means fuck you, you're on your own. Right, exactly. Right? It yeah. Means die in the street. And it means, you know, go form a five mile food line in Houston. That's what it means. Right. And somebody has got to, if the Democrats don't seize this moment to go and make a case and to show people like this is what limited government means. Right. I I, I just got nothing
1: yeah, go go out and go stimulate the economy and and get our stock portfolios richer while you get sick. and that's fine for us, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. He said they wanted to take government, put it in a bathtub, and run it, right? And that's what they've done. And they've left us hopeless and uh, incapable of responding. and And you know, when we look at the American response, compare it to the international response. We we we. I mean to call. I mean God. We used to be the leader of the world. No one's looking at us as a leader now. Right? They're looking. They're looking at us as a laughing stock, and they should because we are
1: right. No, exactly. And I think going back to what you said about Democrats having a positive vision, you wrote about this in a Salon piece, and I just want to note that I'm going to put that in to the show notes as well. It was a really should read all the pieces that. <laughs> Everyone should read everything that you write because it's really insightful. I have a couple more questions if that's okay with you. Okay. The first one is, you know, we talk about negative partisanship. So it's kind of a two-part question. Is negative partisanship here to stay for a while? And if so, is that something that's really sustainable for us as a country?
2: Yeah, no, America's in dire straits. Like I, You know, the conversation that I'm trying to have or bring people into realization that that I'm really just shocked at how little discourse there is about how serious of a situation we're in. Um, It is true that we have had massive corruption in government before. Uh, Under the Nixon administration, it really came to a head. Previous to that, the establishment of the FBI um, in its first iteration under Hoover um, was massively corrupt. It was used against political enemies. It, um, you know, surveilled Martin Luther King Jr. and all kinds of horrible abuses. Those things, in, um, you know, inspired a ton of reform. And ever since then, there, uh, Nixon, you know, being the uh, kind of the apex of that era, um, you know, ever since then, there were reforms put in place to make America stand up to the, to, you know, literally adhere to the democratic principles it purported to live up to, right? Uh, the American story is, I think John Meacham would agree, is a story that has, you know, long had um, better ideals than practice, but has always tried to strive to be, get better, right? And so we've always moved towards better. And right now we were we were better, and now we've taken this huge giant step back. Um, and you know the reason why. Is that you know the only way to check Trump and the uh, we, we've put a man into the White House into a position of power that a healthy political system could never have elected. Okay, he wouldn't have been able to win the Republican Party's nomination, let alone the general election. And with the power that he's been given, and the very um, you know the the system is designed to operate on norms mostly. It's not got a lot of rules or laws put into place. It's, it's based on goodwill largely. Um, he's just overrunning it. And the only stop that really could work against him have, would have to come within the Republican Party. And so far, there is no red line that the Republican Party has um, we've found yet for the Republicans. And I don't know that there is a red line because we have passed, like, you know, before we got here five years ago, if you were to lay out things that have happened and have been passed as red lines, I'd like, say, oh, yeah, no. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell would never let that happen, right? And we've just blown over them without even, you know, really much of a shake. So, um, you know, we're in a really dire straits. Uh, A lot of that comes from the fact that right-wing media system and ecosystem that exists, um, you know, for years has turned everything into a scandal. Um, Lots of conspiracy theories and, you know, bullshit things on the right. Have actually created a situation where a lot of those voters over there are so convinced of the corruption anyway of the system that, like, when real corruption comes along, they think, well, this, you know, Obama was doing all of these terrible things. So our guy is just doing what they're doing anyway. You know what I mean? So, like, um, you know, there's no democratic accountability. And it's not that we're approaching institutional failure. We are in it. Our institutions are failing. The American institutional system is in collapse. And the only other time in you know history that that has happened is the Civil War time. <laughs> this is very serious. And there's no, like, I don't see a clear solution that doesn't have a cataclysm, cataclysm to it. And now I do see longer-term solutions. So I got my research at the Biscannon Center, which I'm just beginning my position there you know, it's under the center's new um, pro-democracy focus. And I'm going to be looking and working on the issue of polarization and hyper-partisanship. And I'm particularly focused on the citizen problem because we talk only about the elites. And and really, you know, we don't talk about the root causes of of the problems in the system. We only talk about all of the symptoms of the problems, um, not the causes. Um, But, you know, what we'd be looking there are at, you know, generational fixes, like something where it's a 20, 30, 40 year fix, you know. Um, So I'm hoping to that that we can fix it that way with calm, steady progression, Um, you know, but because a cataclysm will mean many people will die. We don't want that to happen.
1: No, we certainly don't. And and I don't, you know, just from what you're saying, I don't even think I want to see with that red line how far the GOP takes no, that red line either. No,
2: and I, I will tell you this, like we are in serious straits. So like, you know, when Bernie people tell me, well, I don't care if Trump wins because, you know, I think we need to have everything get burned down so we can start again. We're in burn down. Okay, this is burned down. And for a lot of brown skinned people, like this is life or death. That's not, you know, I get a, a lot of these people are coming from positions of privilege where, you know, they're not the ones who are going to be in a cage or be in a concentration camp or, you know, I mean, we've got 60,000, I don't know if uh, many people know this, we have 60,000 people sitting in a in a refugee camp, basically, that we've created in our asylum program. We used, who, you know, prior to Trump would have been put through the asylum claim system, Sent to a relative in the U.S., all but 15 percent of those people showed up for their asylum hearings. Now they're left in these camps on the you know, basically the stateless system in Mexico, where they're being, you know, raped if they're women. Every, I mean, one of the um, Pulitzer Prize-winning reports on NPR, um, you know, I think one of the most haunting quotes I, I heard from that report was a woman who said. Ask the journalist, do you have any condoms? Because the next time I'm raped, I would like to be able to give one to the rapist so he doesn't get me pregnant. The next time I'm raped, right? Oh my God. I mean, you know what I mean? So like, you know, anybody who's ever seen footage from a third world country or a country that has been destabilized like the Ukraine, like uh, Palestine, um, like South America, should know better than to wish for a system collapse.
1: I think that's very well put. And yeah, I think the people who say Trump isn't that bad, they're the ones who go to these rallies and then go home and yeah. don't even forget about what, what they were even advocating yeah.
2: for. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The last question we have for you is, is a fun one, or we think it could be fun. <laughs> I hope it is fun. Which VP choice do you think would be best to optimize Biden's chance of winning if he's to increase turnout? and follow your models.
2: Yeah, so long-term followers of me will know that I advocate aggressively that Biden needs a turnout-enhancing VP nominee, that you know, the long-standing conventional wisdom is that VP nominees don't matter. Uh, maybe there's a home state you ma- you know, uh, con- you know, um, component to VPs, blah, blah, blah. I argue in the age of polarization, actually, because of hyper-partisanship and ideological extremism within the two party coalitions, Uh, especially in the Democratic coalition now, that the VP pick has actually had a lot of power, uh, especially uh, given that um, uh, the loss for Clinton in 2016 was driven primarily by the failure of progressives to rally behind her. And the huge defection rates that we saw for third party um, and Brighton balloting in the swing states, I mean, Wisconsin, saw 6% of the electorate cast protest ballots. That's five times higher than normal. The election came down to less than a point between Clinton and Trump. So for all the conversation about white working class voters, who, by the way, are realigning to the uh, Republican Party anyway, um, really the story in Wisconsin and, and many of these swing states was this defection problem. And the, you know the uh, failure of the Clinton team to understand at what how big of a threat Disaffection amongst those Bernie Sanders supporters was going to be due to polarization and ideological extremism. And the Democratic coalition of today is not the Democratic coalition of 10 years ago. There is a very vibrant ideological component of the progressive left, just like there is in the GOP, where you see like the Tea Party and then the House Freedom Caucus contingent. It's not as powerful by any means on the left, but it really exerted some might in that 2016 cycle. And in my book, I I show that empirically, and I talk about what might have been, had uh, instead of doubling down with a white moderate VP selection, um, Clinton had gone with a bridge, um, olive branch type candidate, um, Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker, or somebody like that, that would have at least um, sent a message to progressives, hey, I hear you. Um, I want to represent you, uh, I want to bring you into the tent. And it became very obvious to me that it was gonna be a huge problem at the convention where it was almost uh, open rebellion on the floor. So, you know, you really want as you know, as moderate white voters, can, if they aren't coming over now with a pandemic and economic collapse thrown in, like you've maxed out that component with Joe Biden as the nominee, now you wanna shore up those weaker components of the strategy and that weaker component is African-American turnout, Latino turnout, and um, youth, youth turnout and, um, you know, um, that worry of progressivist defecting. So, and the um, Trump campaign is going to devote millions of dollars on a propaganda, disinformation, misinformation campaign. That will aim at social media advertising at Bernie people that heightens their um, distrust of the DNC, their distrust of Biden, and tries to get them to weaponize basically against themselves and their own self interest. Because, of course, a Trump victory here will guarantee that it doesn't matter who the next president is if it is a more progressive guy, because the uh, Supreme Court will be locked in. For 30 years, with a seven to two conservative majority, if Trump wins again,
1: and that is a truly a very scary thought—a seven to two majority. Oh, so many things. it yes, doesn't
2: matter. And this idea that oh well, don't we'll just we'll just pack the court. Okay, well, yes, who gets to decide if that's legal? The seven to two court, majority.
1: <laughs> which they will say so no luck way with that. Good yeah, luck with that. <laughs> and they will say no way to that.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's a fool's fool. I mean, just, I like to do this. I like to close out with this. If In case you're, in case one of those people considering this are listening, imagine election night in November, you are you know, Brad Parscale, Trump campaign team manager, your ranch, whatever, you're one of these, you're Trump. And you have just convinced the progressive left, you know, not to vote for Joe Biden in enough numbers to tip Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, back you know to Trump, and you know that you have just you know basically convinced them to screw themselves out of political power for the next generation. They'll be laughing, they're, they'll be smoking Cuban cigars, drinking five hundred dollars of Don Perignon, and laughing their asses off at you. You don't want to make that happen.
1: No, yeah, you do not. Um, and where? Um... Where can folks read more about your work? Um, um,
2: so I highly advise people follow me on Twitter. I'm active there every day, throwing out, you know, little nuggets. And um, you know, my stuff is on the Scannon Center website and also, you know, Google. I've got I've got a new website coming that like kind of stockpiles all my pods and media hits. So that's gonna be going live soon.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And and your book is the unprecedented 2016 Presidential Election can be found on Amazon. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your insights. I really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
0: So your life under lockdown question. Hills, here's the question. If you could watch a documentary about any person or any team, who would it be and why?
1: So this is a really good question. I think, so the first thing that comes to mind um is i would really like to know like see a documentary about inside the white house and also inside the cuomo newsom and hogan like Mm. governorships at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis like i want to see kind of like what was all the the things that went on behind the scenes to see like being competence of the white house but also like Mm -hmm. how did these governor offices react when they realized they were on their own like, what, what were the decisions made? How did they put everything in place? Because I think those are the, the three governors that, a, have been obviously most out in front and in public, but also, like, have responded really well to this. So I think that could be interesting. What about you?
0: That's a good one. I've always found Robert Kennedy to be a really fascinating person and to kind of see, like, how he grew up, his relationship with his brother, his time as uh, the attorney general, and then, you know, his run for presidency and kind of his murder and, The reaction to it, how the nation reacted to it. Um, I find the whole Kennedy family very, very interesting. So I think a documentary on Robert Kennedy would be really interesting to see kind of what his life was like and how people compare him to his brother.
1: That's very cool, because honestly, I think, you know, Robert Kennedy, could have we could have had a whole different future if he became president. I think he would have. Yeah,
0: yeah, oh, I think he would have too. So obviously um, this is all in relation to The Last Dance. Have you seen The Last Dance at all?
1: I've seen clips, but I actually haven't sat down and watched.
0: Oh, well, for anyone who's looking for a good documentary on ESPN, The Last Dance, really well done documentary about Michael Jordan and the and the uh, 1998 Bulls. kind of got me thinking, you know, what's, if we could have any documentary, what would it be? And there we have our answers. So that was Life Under Lockdown. And your dessert is coming up next.
1: Your dessert today is about the HEROES Act. And for folks who don't know what the HEROES Act is, it was an 1,800-page piece of legislation um, passed by the U.S. House last Friday, May 15th. And it was about $3 trillion worth of stimulus. And so it contained a bunch of things. And let me, let's take you through what it contained and why it's good and why we think this is a good dessert. So it contained nearly a trillion dollars for state, local, and tribal governments because they've been hit really hard about losing tax revenue and spending money that the government didn't spend for them. So they are on huge deficits and tons of programs would be cut if they don't get their, get their budgets plugged in because of coronavirus spending. It's another round of direct payments to individuals, up to $6,000 per family, which can really help struggling families who really need it, including unauthorized immigrants. $200 billion for hazard pay for essential workers, because they've been out there day in and day out while we've been in the house, actually, you know, getting sick and, and some of them dying from coronavirus. $75 billion for coronavirus testing and tracing, increased spending on food stamps, because a lot of people now who are unemployed need food stamps for to get food, to live. $175 billion in housing support, student loan forgiveness, hell yeah, a new employee retention tax credit, and an extension of unemployment benefits. So a whole bunch of stuff that will help a whole lot of people but do
0: cost a lot of money. Josh, what do you think about this? Um, this is a great uh, bill. You know, I think the trillion dollars to state, local, and and tribal governments is really important. Um, Gavin Newsom came out earlier today and said that um, if the if the states don't get money, he said the first people who are going to lose their job is these um, frontline workers, people who are out there day in day out fighting the coronavirus. But you know, um, the states need help. The states need money. This is why we have a federal government to help out the state governments. You know, and uh, the $6,000 per family, you know, should be super helpful to a lot of families. I know that uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, said that uh, your your $1,200 payment that you got was supposed to last you for like 10 weeks. I don't know how, I don't know what earth he's living on where, you know, $1,200 can sustain you for 10 weeks or eight weeks or whatever. And some people haven't even gotten paid yet. You know, I think it's, it's crazy. This is a, a, a great bill. It, it, it also shows the people what Democrats are trying to do. And now you're going to tell Republicans, you know, go ahead and veto this. Go ahead and veto a trillion dollars for the states. Go ahead and veto $6,000 for family. Go ahead and veto $200 billion for hazard pay for these essential workers. Go ahead and veto $75 billion on coronavirus testing and tracing. Go ahead and veto that. The Republicans have already said this bill is dead on a rifle in the Senate, and Trump is not going to sign it if somehow it gets through the Senate, and that's really unfortunate. I think Republicans have said that they want to see, you know, they want, they want to take a pause, Hills, they want to take a pause and kind of see where we are. I can tell you where we are, we're in the shit, so I don't know why we're trying to pause now, but um, sadly this bill is not going to get passed, but I think it does a lot of good for a lot of people if it was going to get passed.
1: You know they want to pause. They want to pause because they want to. They don't want to fund the things that won't help them politically. It doesn't help them politically to fund New York and California and a bunch of other states, even if they're Republican states. It doesn't help them that. But they they do want to get the money out the door to big corporations who are their donors and lobbyists, because that's you know that's their priority. It always has been, and it always will be until we vote them all
0: out. The Republicans are calling this bill a. Uh, a blue state bailout, which is just so offensive. It's just <laughs> a blue state bailout. Basically, we don't want to help blue states. But what happened to the fact that people in blue states are dying and people in red states are dying? And so, why? So you know, Americans are dying. It, it, it shouldn't matter what state they're in. Exactly. You said that exactly right. It shouldn't matter whether I live in New
1: York. Also, there are Republicans who live in New York, too. So, like, why is my life not... Why is my life or your life, Josh, or anyone else's life not valuable to these fucking people who who say, "Oh, it's well, help me politically, so you don't get life?" I mean like just seriously, honestly, and you know what, as we're talking about this now, Josh, and but like the Democrats should be on mm-hmm. this, like let's go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know every Democrat, whether you run whether you are a senator or whether you are. A member of the House, whether you are Joe Biden or whoever, everyone should be going out there saying, "We are trying to pass three trillion dollars to help you, to help save your life, to help make sure that you're you are, that you do not die not from just coronavirus, but from starvation, from not having a you know a place to live, from not having a meal." And we're and we are we are passing all this money because to get out of this recession, to get out of a, a depression, you have to spend money. You get to spend money to get out of, of, of an economic depression. And you know what? There are – I know people who are re- Republicans who are saying that the interest rate is essentially 0% right now. So you can pay this off whenever, right? There's there's no interest rate for for you know spending this this money, for borrowing this money. It's very depressing that it's down arrival, but I think you're right, Hills. Every single Democrat, House, Senate, presidential candidates, you know – running for local school board everyone should be talking about this bill and how democrats are trying to save lives and republicans and trump don't care
1: because they really don't they honestly don't unless you are a industry that gives money to your to republicans to help protect that white house in the senate like they don't care (laughs) oh god it it just makes me so upset like yeah do i think this is a lot of money of course i do it's just and do i agree with maybe everything in this thing probably not the fact that Steve Mnuchin says that 1200 bucks is going to make sure people who have been laid off and continue to be laid off is going to be enough money for the, this entire crisis? No way. We're going to need to have more money to people regardless. I mean, states are going to reopen, but this virus is not going away. Right. So the virus is going to be here, and people will keep getting sick, and I don't know what they think is going to happen. <laughs> I
0: really don't. I'll just end with this, this thought here. You know, states are going to— reopen. Just because a state reopens does not mean people are going to feel safe and feel okay to go out and start spending their, their money like they normally would. This is what Republicans never get. They don't understand that, you know, passing tax cuts or giving people more money does not necessarily make them more likely to spend that money if they don't feel safe, right? And I can tell you right now, if, Mar- if Maryland opens Right, and most of Maryland is open. A couple of counties are not open, but when Maryland opens, I'm not necessarily just gonna go down to the movie theater or down to a restaurant or you know, down to get my haircut. i like, most people are going to not use that uh, that, that, that money and they're, and they're gonna just stay at home. And so, if people are staying at home and the economy is tanking, you need to give people assurances, you need to make sure that people have money that people have. Uh, you know that their state has money, and people have the testing that they need, and you can't do that if you don't pass a bill, so it's really disappointing that it, that Republicans are holding this bill up, but it's not surprising. No one should be surprised by this
1: and boy do do I need a haircut more <laughs> now than ever?
0: Yeah, you know, just grow it out else just do a a mullet you know businesses is in the front party in the back um, All right. <laughs> are mullets in style in 2020 sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh maybe not i don't know all right well we are going to uh head to our uh, pre-dinner shot answer which is coming up next so we are going to give you the answer to your pre-dinner shot question so hill's asked in the beginning of the podcast how many igs has trump fired in the last five months and the answer is four he has fired four different inspector generals in the past five months.
1: Boy, boy, four. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. There has been never, like, it doesn't happen. You do not fire that many inspector generals who are looking into corruption of your own administration in five months. You just don't do that. You
0: certainly do not. So, Hill, I think that's going to do it for our podcast unless you have any final messages. Yeah, so before you go, a few important things.
1: The intro and outro music is by Brett Hillsberg, and the transition music is by Joseph McDade. If you enjoy, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. It will truly, truly help. Tell your friends to listen if you can and share this episode on social media. Again, subscribe. super easy to do. It's on your podcast app. I'm sure there's an easy button that says subscribe. And if you have any questions, you can email us at 3 at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back again soon.